this morning. If you want, please open up your Bible to um, the book of Acts, chapter 4. Um, continuing on through our study through the book of Acts, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you, God, for bringing us here safely. Um, thank you for the beauty of the, the white-covered ground and the snow coming down. And um, Lord, I'm also grateful that it's probably going to be gone tomorrow, so thank you for that, too. Um, Lord, we are reminded of the beauty of your creation when we see the changing of the seasons and the work that you do. And Father, um, we pray that you would continue to do a work in us and through us individually and as a church as we reach in the lives of those around us, Lord, as we're filled with your spirit like what we read about here in the book of Acts and called to um, answer the great commission <clears throat> to teach people about you and the things that you've made known to us. So, Lord, give us um, wisdom in doing that uh, in light of the times that we're living in. Lord, we know your return is near. We see things going on in Israel and the rest of the world that sure looks like, Lord, things that you have said would come to pass in the scriptures um, before your return. So, Lord, may we um, be prepared. May we be expectant. May we discern and understand the times and the seasons that we're living in spiritually, Lord. And with that, we pray for the nation of Israel and conflict that they're in right now. Lord, um, pray you protect innocent life. I pray, God, you'd bring a, a speedy resolution to um, uh, this conflict, this attack that has taken place. And Lord, that you would protect Israel and the rest of the nations, Lord, around them from any other <clears throat> escalation of violence. Lord, we pray for the um, men and women and children and family members in Maine who, Lord, are grieving now as a result of this tragic um, shooting, this um, attack that took place in these two different places. Lord, we see these kinds of evil things perpetrated all too often, and um, Lord, we're saddened by them like you are. We know you are. We know there's a day of justice coming for this kind of stuff. But in the meantime, Lord, <clears throat> we pray for um, your Holy Spirit's presence to be there, um, for your son Jesus to comfort those who are grieving in the midst of this loss. And Lord, ultimately, that you would work good out of what the enemy has intended for evil. Father, we love you, and we ask God that as we study your word this morning, that you would meet us individually and personally where we're at. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Acts. Curtis filled in for me for the last two weeks. Thanks for those of us who were, or those of you who were praying for my wife and I as we got to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary, and we took a uh, a a once-a-lifetime trip to Scotland and Ireland, and it was fabulous. Uh, I would highly recommend if you get a chance to go, go. Um, but we're glad to be back home and glad to be back with you. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been through the book of Acts, and as we enter into chapter 4, we find ourselves really in the middle of an account that Luke had started to tell us about in chapter 3, in the middle of this supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, actually a work of healing it was done through the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. And if you remember <clears throat> from what we read in chapter 3, we know that as Peter and John were going to the temple, they were going to, their, to pray, 
that they encountered a man who was laying in the gates, one of the gates of the temple, which was a very common thing for people who were in need at that time to do. And this man was crippled from birth, and he was begging for money. He was asking for alms. And Peter and John, as they passed by this man, they felt the leading of the Holy Spirit, and, and they responded to this man's request for a monetary gift, not by giving him gold or silver or a coin, but they ministered to the greater need that this man had. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're told by faith in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, they healed this man. They spoke healing into this man's life. And um, we know that um, all who were present there gathered at the temple and at the gate, they witnessed this, they saw this. And in light of this healing, we talked about how this supernatural act was intended by God to be another opportunity for Peter to share the good news message about Jesus' death and resurrection to the Hebrew people. Really a, a second chance opportunity to the nation of Israel who just rejected Jesus, the Messiah, and crucified him upon a cross for them to have a change of heart, to have a change of mind. In the light of this, we see how God's intention through this message was to give them a chance to receive Jesus according to the prophetic truths that were being brought forth, even as Peter was speaking and proclaiming that if the nation would take this second chance to repent, if they would take this time to change their mind regarding Jesus, then there would be the prophesied time of refreshing something the nation of Israel knew about, something they believed that would come with the coming of the Messiah, a time of restoration, a time of deliverance where the nation would be restored, <clears throat> a time of refreshing, really, that Peter said they missed out on because they had put the Messiah to death, but that if they repented, God would, would give them this time still in His grace and His mercy would be poured out for them upon them and that He would send the Messiah, His Son, back to them. Yet we're told that the Jews as a nation refused. Sadly, they refused again. The nation of Israel, as represented by their leaders, the second chance from God that had been presented to them through Peter that we read about in chapter 3. However, as we briefly touched on the first four or five verses last week or a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 3 and kind of read the beginning of chapter 4, that we know that in spite of the nation's rejection, the Holy Spirit moved and there was an adding to the church as 5,000 Jewish men chose to repent. They, choose, they, chose, they, they changed their mind, and they were converted by believing upon Jesus and received him as the long-awaited-for Messiah, believed in him to be the Son of God. And so with that, let's jump into chapter 4. I want to reread those first four verses and then go on into verse 22 this morning, and then we'll go from there. And it says in verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke to the people, again, this is Peter and John, right, proclaiming the gospel message, speaking of this time of refreshing, calling them to repent. It says that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Why? Because it says here in verse 2, they are greatly disturbed that they, Peter and John, taught the people and preached Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those heard the word, believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name 
have you done this? And we know that these, this group is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the religious rulers of the day. And more importantly for us to remember, this is the exact same group of people who had tried Jesus unjustly, even though they found no fault or guilt with him, and turned him over to Pontius Pilate, turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. And to this very same group of people, it says there in verse 5, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you. Wouldn't you have liked to have been in the room when that happened? He went on to say, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside or go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle, hear that? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and they said also here, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people. This is so, so mind-blowing to me, just the hard-heartedness of this group of men recognizing this, and yet their, their only concern is, is how do we stop people from knowing about it? But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them. And commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. For we cannot speak the things, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now, one of the things I'm sure of as a result of this study through my chat through this chapter, I'm sure of this, the early church understood some very key things that I think that we as the church in America or even the modern day church don't understand oh so well. I believe they understood that they were in a battle, and I believe they understood exactly who they were battling against, things that we need to keep in mind today, especially in light of the fact that I look around the world that we're living in, and I go, we're living in the last days. The Lord's return is near, and with that, I think that the battle that we've been called to is going to intensify in many ways that we've never thought or even could have predicted and we know in the days leading up to Jesus' death and 
crucifixion on the cross that he spent a great amount of time preparing his disciples for the time when he would no longer be with them for this time that we're reading about now. He wanted them to be prepared. He forewarned them. He told them about what would happen. And during his ministry, Jesus told his disciples, he said, if you choose to follow me, remember he told each of them this in very specific ways in, in, all throughout his ministry, but specifically at the end, he intensified on this. He said, he said that if they chose to follow him, that they were going to be hated, that they, were gonna be, that they would suffer, that they would be persecuted for his namesake, saying things like, because they hate me, they're going to hate you. They'll hate you also. And I imagine that in this moment, when these events came to pass, that the disciples were remembering these words of Jesus and others like them that, that Jesus had spoken to them when they were now, in this instance, being arrested for preaching about Jesus and his resurrection. Not for doing an evil thing, but for doing a good thing, doing a godly thing. And even though Peter and John were released, in this instance, we know that they were released from prison with just threats and words of warning to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, we know historically as we look back and what we read through the Bible and look back historically of, of, of historical accounts of the early churches, we know that the persecution and suffering that the early church would endure, that they would go through, it would be horrific. Things that are unimaginable that were done to believers early on. Yet this persecution, we know it didn't silence the church from speaking the truth. In fact, as a result of the persecution, I would say, and in spite of the persecution, the message, the gospel message spread throughout the whole world. And we have to ask ourselves, why? How did that happen? And I believe this was due to that godly perspective that we're talking about here. That the early church had regarding not only persecution and, 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 and what might come as a result of following Christ, but also regarding adversary. Uh, regarding adversaries. The same kind of adversity or trials that the Apostle Paul reminded the church in Ephesus about in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen, he said this. This is the perspective. For we're not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world. He says the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. And then he says, so put on God's armor now. Then when the evil day comes, I think that's today, the times we're living in, and I know it's speaking about just in general, when evil comes upon you, but as far as a time or a season, I think this is it. When the evil day comes, when you do that, put on the armor of God now. So when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. Now when I stop and consider what I read here in these first four verses, I think it's possible that Peter and John, I don't know for sure, I'm just kind of... I'm just kind of reading into it a little bit, but I, I suspect that they didn't expect to be arrested for what they had just done or what they had just said. And I suspect this because of all the awesome things that they had just been experiencing since really Jesus' ascension. Remember, the disciples, as accounted by the Gospels and also what we've been reading here in the Gospel or in Luke's account, is that the disciples since the ascension, had received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus had said. And in doing so, they'd been filled with God's supernatural power 
and saw tongues of fire above each other's heads. They had gone into the streets and they were boldly proclaiming the works of God, we're told, in languages they did not know. And people were understanding them. Could you imagine being a part of that? And in addition to that, they had just seen 300 men, or excuse me, 3,000 men, 3,000 men, not counting the women and children. I was only counting the men. We know there was more than that. That this group was added to their little group of 120. I mean, they had been partying. And now things were only getting better. As Peter and John going to pray, had just miraculously healed a man who had been lame from birth in front of everybody. Which caused the crowd to gather and listen to Peter. They were listening intently. Peter who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter who was now offering them on God's behalf a second chance to repent. A second chance to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And in light of this, if I put myself in this situation, I believe that Peter and John were thinking that the nation might repent. I think that was their hope. This is the moment, guys. This is it, is what they were thinking. And they would receive Jesus as their Messiah. And that they would return that Jesus would return like he said he was going to do. That's what Jesus said. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Go and preach and tell people when that has happened. And then be ready for me to come back because I'm coming back. And they still didn't get it. They stood there. <clears throat> and so then the angels were sent to say, hey, guys, close your mouth. Get off the mountain. Jesus is coming back. Go do what he said. And I think this was the expectation. But instead of, think about it now, instead of seeing Jesus' return, that prophetic, in, in spite, in, instead of seeing the prophetic time of refreshing that Peter just had prophetically preached come to pass, they were now sitting in a prison cell <laughs> and waiting to stand trial in front of the same leaders who had just turned Jesus over to the Romans and called for him to be put to death. So I think it's safe to say that this was probably an unexpected turn of events, don't you think? At the very least, it was a frightening time as they had been suddenly arrested, seized, and thrown into jail, and now had many threats made against them. However, what was happening was exactly what Jesus said would happen. And, and as a matter of fact, it's a, continued, it's a continuing, continuing pattern that the Apostle Paul saw in his own ministry, and a pattern I believe that we still see taking place today, and we need to have open eyes for. In other words, Paul writing to the early church in Corinth while he was in Ephesus, he spoke of his desire. He wrote of his desire to come and visit them. He had plans to do so, but his plans were changed. He said to him, my visit would have to be delayed because there is a door of opportunity that had been opened for him to minister to the Ephesians. And yet, while acknowledging the door of opportunity, we know that Paul also pointed out that with this opportunity that God had given to him, there was also much adversity. With the opportunity, there was adversity. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9, Paul said this, Now, I'll come to you when I pass through Macedonia, and it may be that while that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, because I hope to stay with you for a while, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry here in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many, there are many adversities, many adversaries, Paul says. And the point of all of this, listen, is to say that we need to expect and be prepared for 
adversity. We need to be prepared and expect that there will be adversaries who will come when we answer the call of God and when we walk through the doors of spiritual opportunity that have been made open to us. Because when we're aware, here's the reason why we need to, is because when we're aware that adversities and adversaries will come, then we can be spiritually prepared and emotionally prepared for those times of attack. Well, listen, being expectant and prepared, you need, we need to understand it's only half the battle, as we must also be mindful, I think ultimately, of how we respond in the times of adversity to the adversaries. And in responding in, 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 in responding, we need to respond in godly ways. Godly ways during these times and to these adversarial people. And responding in godly ways is as simple as remembering what the early church, I think, grasped is that we're in a battle. That the battle that we're in is a spiritual battle. It's not a battle against other human beings. In other words, we must allow for the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be manifested in us and through us into these situations. What is that? Love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is so important to remember because, listen, I'm sure you've all experienced this in one way or another, but Satan's way of attacking us is to get us to... to, to react in sinful ways, to respond in sinful ways. And when we lose sight that it's a spiritual battle, that's exactly what we do. We respond in the flesh. We give in to our hurt feelings or, or feelings of anger, discouragement, disappointment, and even, even to then turn, right? Rather than to stand the ground, we turn and we, we begin to battle against those who are on our team so that we're divided and ununified. And sadly, we often, in very practical ways that this plays out, not godly ways, but practically we see or we end up retaliating against those who are closest to us during times of attack and times of adversity. And this means for us who are husbands, we might turn and fight. We might turn and fight against our wives and children, forgetting that we're in a spiritual battle. For you who are wives, you know what? We might, you might turn to your husband and your children and fight against them when you forget that it's a spiritual battle you're fighting. Even we within the church, and I think we saw a good example of this when COVID hit the scene, sadly, a bad example of this. I mean, an accurate example of this. That I think so many, in so many ways as, as, as different churches chose to respond differently to that season of COVID and the restrictions and everything, that the church experienced division, experienced, the church experienced um, disunity as we turn and fought amongst ourselves, sadly. And we were brothers and the sisters in the Lord. We might turn and fight against each other when we forget that it's a spiritual battle that we're fighting. Let it not be so among us. Let it not be so among us. But rather than turning, listen, rather than turning, the Bible makes it very clear that we're to put on the armor of God and stand our ground like what we're told again in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read a bigger portion of that text to you now. Paul writes, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. 
put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of darkness of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, not turn, it doesn't say, but you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. To stand, to be prepared. To expect. And in these next verses, in the midst of this attack against Peter and John for doing this very godly thing, the accusation was brought against them. It's found in verse 7 when they were asked, By what power or by what name had they healed this man? Yet what we know <clears throat> is that Peter and John had not really been arrested and were now being tried for healing a man. And as Peter begins to speak here in verse 9, look, he points out just how ridiculous the thought of this accusation even is. But then, standing his ground, not turning, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter engages the battle in verse 10. And he does so by preaching Jesus to them. Pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And in doing so, I think what we quickly realize is that the real issue <clears throat> that these religious leaders had with Peter and John is that they had preached Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's not that they had healed a man. Remember back in verse 1, look there, we're told a very important piece of information here in verse 1. We're told that ultimately it was the Sadducees who had come and upon them and had taken them in custody. I point this in custody, and I point this out because the Sadducees were a powerful sect of religious Jews who at this time ruled the Sanhedrin. We know that there were different sects of religious Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, so on and so forth. In fact, um, Caiaphas, Alexander, and John, who are mentioned by name in verse 6, they were all leaders in the Sanhedrin and a part of this sect of the Sadducees, this ruling sect of the Sadducees at this time. And this is important because we know that the Sadducees believed and taught that there was no resurrection. There was no life after death, saying that the soul perished when the body died. And so when we connect those dots, we see that when Peter and John here decided to, to, to heal this man and to teach about the resurrection of, of Jesus and heal this man in the name of Jesus, their teaching of the resurrection was authenticated, right? Saying Jesus died, he rose, he's the Savior, he's the one you need to believe in. All of what Jesus or Peter and John were proclaiming was authenticated by the supernatural work of the healing of the man who had been lame from birth. <coughs> and it was this that offended and challenged these religious leaders whose teachings were contrary to this. It was a complete undermining in their eyes 
of their religious authority. And I believe in one sense that this is the same kind of problem that is in a lot of churches today. This is what I mean. In other words, there are many in the church today who say they believe in the resurrection of Jesus and they stand behind pulpits and they refuse to teach or preach about the cross or about the resurrection because they're afraid of offending someone. Consequently, these seeker-friendly pleasers of men will not preach Jesus as the Savior who came down to earth and denounced sin. They will not tell of a Jesus who died on the cross for sin and who rose from the dead demonstrating his power over sin. They do not preach or teach a need to turn away from sin and to live pure and holy lives. So it would seem to me that this message is hated just as much today as it ever was when Peter and John had preached it back then. But let me be perfectly clear, because Peter does a wonderful job of making it perfectly clear here. It's this message that gives life. It gives life more abundantly, the Bible says, to those who will believe. Look, Peter declared in verse 12, he said, There is no other name except for the name of Jesus by which we can be saved. And we know that Jesus, with his own words, recorded in John chapter 14, verse 6, said this. He said, he said, definitively, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Also, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, said in 2 Timothy chapter 5, or chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, he said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One mediator. One way. There's no, that means there's no work or no amount of works that we can do to save us, to save ourselves. <clears throat> Furthermore, when we look at all the different religions that are out there in the world and all the different religious ceremonies that are put forth by these religions, we understand quickly that there is no religion and there's no religious ceremony that can save us. We can't buy our way into heaven, and we certainly can't beg our way into heaven. Only Jesus can save us from our sin and from hell. Can you say that in church still? Yes, you can, because it's in the Bible. Jesus can, he's the, only he can save us from our sin. Only he can save us from hell. Only he can save us from eternal death that we all deserve as a result of our sin. And we are only saved, guys. Here's the good news. This is the best part of it. We're saved when we come to Jesus in faith, believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths that he is the Lord, that he's our Lord. Listen, it's because of what Jesus did, not because of what we could do or what we shouldn't do. And this is why Peter says in verse 11, look, quoting from Psalm 118, that Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. In light of this, Peter was saying, we must begin with Jesus as the foundation of our salvation, and we must build up from there. It's all about Jesus. And Peter would write about Jesus being the cornerstone in greater detail in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9. through 9, This is where we get our namesake as Living Stone Calvary Chapel, where it says, Come to Him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God, which is by far better. You're going to be rejected by men for the sake of being chosen by God. Amen. And precious. Chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. So that you may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. Same passage of Scripture. We quote it again. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on Jesus will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Jesus is precious to us who believe. But he says to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, that says a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed, but you are chosen, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, so that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, for the nation of Israel and their religious leaders who we read about here in the context of this, of this passage, in light of these events, these who rejected Jesus, Jesus became to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In spite of all the evidence, they could say nothing against the disciples or in light of all the evidence. They could find no wrongdoing by which to condemn them for and they could not deny the mighty work that had been done. And in light of this, we might think, oh, this is how I go. I think about this and I go, I think that getting to this place of witnessing this kind of miracle done in the power, in the name of Jesus, I think, how could that not turn a heart to God? And in some cases, it does. In many cases, it does. But it didn't hear, and as strange as it might seem, there are those whose hearts are hardened towards God when they see these kinds of things. And this is exactly what took place with these religious leaders who chose to dismiss the truth. And that's because the Bible says we, we ultimately, in all instances, people, people forsake the goodness of God that is manifested before them because they are lovers of selves and haters of the truth. And that defines these guys. They dismissed the truth, they hated the truth, and they opposed Jesus and the disciples even though they could not deny that the miracle had taken place. And I point this out because the Bible clearly tells us this. Hear this today. Please remember this. That a choice or a decision to believe or to exercise faith in Jesus is never an issue of um, lack of information. It's never a, 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 an issue of lack of evidence or proof. Meaning unbelief is not a problem of, a, of the mind. Unbelief and, and, and unwillingness to exercise faith is always a problem of our will and of our heart. In fact, Scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked, and it even says that, that unbelief can creep into our lives as believers if we're not careful. In light of this, I, would, I don't have time to read it to you this morning, but go read Romans chapter 11. It's a warning against unbelief. Read that this week. But I do want to speak about what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. Because when we look to the, what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, we come to understand that God removes all excuse for unbelief and we see that the heart of all unbelief is ultimately this it always boils down to this it is an unwillingness to give god the position of honor in our lives that he deserves 
Listen to what Paul wrote, Romans 1, verses 20 through 22. It says, Ever since God created the world, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen. I'll read that again. Ever since God created the world, His invisible qualities, both His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly seen. They are perceived in the things that God has made. And then Paul says this, so people have no excuse at all. They know God, but they do not give Him the honor that belongs to Him, nor do they thank Him. Instead, their thoughts have been complete nonsense. Their thoughts have become complete nonsense, and their empty minds are filled with darkness. They say they are wise, but they are fools. And this defines what is taking place with these religious leaders. And I believe these, these, these words rightly describe all unbelief. And reveal how foolish we are when we don't believe in or trust in the things of God despite the evidences that we've been given. When we choose to do what we want to do instead of what God says we should do. That's unbelief. We believe our ways are better than God's ways. And, and, and the truth is, it's complete nonsense. We may not think that in the moment. Sometimes we do. We might go, oh, I know this is complete nonsense, but we, we, we don't even deceive ourselves. We just go for it. Other times we don't realize it's complete nonsense and that God's word was right until we come back around on the other side of it. Think about that with your kids. Sometimes you're like, you think you know, but you don't know. But you will know. <laughs> you will know. And our minds are filled with darkness. And we think we're wise, but we're just being foolish. Unbelief. The Apostle Paul would later write to Timothy telling him, he said, avoid these types of people. He says they have a form of godliness, but they deny, they deny the power of God. And in doing so, Paul also said that they are, they're always learning. Think about this. They're always learning about God, but never come to a knowledge of the truth. They never put their trust in God. And I believe this clearly describes these religious leaders, as I've already said, who arrested Peter and John, and once again, ultimately, who refused the truth of Jesus, which was right before them. Undeniable. It says they couldn't deny it. They said they couldn't deny it. But I love the fact that the Jewish council, according to verse 13, I love this part of it, says that they marveled, these religious leaders, they marveled at Peter and John's boldness and at the authority. They marveled at the authority by which they spoke. Bold, confident. And because of that, they perceived, because of these things, that they had been hanging out with Jesus. These men have been with Jesus. It's obvious. And I love this because it once again testifies to the fact that Peter and John, who were uneducated fishermen, it testifies to the fact that they had been radically and supernaturally changed simply by hanging out with Jesus. And now they were proven to be bold, proven to be wise. And, and, and this fact and these attributes, these same attributes were seen in the, in the lives of all the apostles as a result of them having spent time with Jesus. And I mention that because the same can be true in our lives today. The Bible makes it very clear. Because hanging out with Jesus has changed us. Hanging out with Jesus will continue to change us. The Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, 
he writes about a veil of separation. He says that veil that separated us from God, that veil of separation, he said it was our sin and it separated us from God. And yet now because of Jesus, that veil has been lifted. Listen, he says as a result of that, Paul said in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 3, verse 8, he said, now we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So listen, if we want to be wiser, I mean, think, who wants to be a fool? (laughs) We want to be wise, right? We want people to perceive us as wise, as godly, If we want to be wise, then we need to hang out with Jesus. You're like, Pastor, you're just making that, you're oversimplifying that. No, it's not, not. It's what the Word says. It's about relationship. It's always been about relationship. It always is about relationship. If we want to be godly and wise husbands and wives, godly and wise moms and dads, godly and wise employers and employees and godly and wise friends, then we need to make hanging out with Jesus our priority. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. Remember, Christianity is not a self-improvement course. There are not good Christians. God doesn't want us to be good Christians. He wants us to be in love with Him and follow His Son and be transformed by the in, from the inside out and be godly Christians. That's something we can't do on our own. Christianity is not a self-improvement course. Rather, what is it? It's a single step. You know, a self-improvement course is just like, oh, you do this and then you do this and you do this and you do that. Just give me the 10 steps, right? It's a single step. Christianity. A single step of hanging out with Jesus. Like Curtis was talking about last week. Who are we in? We are with Him. Hidden in Him. And, and, and as a result of that, hanging out with Him, we're changed forever. We're changed for the better. Because spending time with Jesus will make us more like Him. And as a result, here's the awesome thing about it. People's going to see the changes within us. People will see it. They'll notice just like they saw the changes in Jesus' first disciples, they were hanging out with Jesus. Is that what people say about us? Now here in verses 18 and 19, we read Peter and John's response. I like this to being instructed to never speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. We're going to let you go. Don't you dare speak in Jesus' name ever again. And I love their response to these really clear-hearted leaders of Israel when they answered in them and said, okay, you're the judge. You guys are the ones in authority. So you decide whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. And he said, for we're going to preach and teach the things that we have seen and heard concerning Jesus because this is what God has commanded us to do. And I have to admit that it's possibly, possibly, Um, the rebellious nature of my own heart that shouts in approval of Peter and John's civil disobedience. I'm like, yeah. I have been known to speak my mind in these ways 
from not just behind this pulpit <laughs> and in the public setting. But here's what I know. I know that biblically God would have us stand in a place of no compromise. And it's a message that's so applicable for the time that we're living in today. I know that God, because of what the Bible says, would have us stand in places of no compromise when it comes to His commands. Even if the authorities of today make stands and demands that are against God's commands. We don't turn, we stand. And because we're called to be God-pleasers and not pleasers of men, we need to follow Peter's example and make our decision to stand on the basis of this. Is it right? Not is it popular or is it safe? And I think we're going to be confronted with that more and more and more again in our lifetime as we see the end draw near. However, we must be sure that we have this, this, this in line. We must be clear that it's the teaching of the Word of God that we have on our side before we take the stands against the authorities that God has set in place in our lives. God's Word is the, is the standard by which we do this. And Peter knew what, what, what Jesus had commanded him to do. And he was going to obey Jesus at any cost. However, Peter, just for the sake of balance, he also wrote about our needs as Christians to obey the authorities in every other instance. Saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, and a lot of people, I've heard it within the church, they'll take this passage of Scripture out of context and use it for justification to do the safe thing or the popular thing and not the right thing. But here's the context and here's the balance. It says, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it is the king supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for this reason, the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. That's a qualifying factor to submitting to authorities. Not when they're doing evil or not doing good or punishing those who are good. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance and foolishness of men. So when authorities, even though we don't like them, are punishing evildoers and praising those who do good in this idea of they're on God's side, we walk with them. When we're not, we pray for them. Now in these next set of verses, in these final set of verses, I'm going to read them and then we'll... Oh, we're doing good. And in verse 23. <laughs> and being let go, they went to their own companions. And I was sharing with first service. I, I really don't, I really struggle with this last part. Maybe you will do too. But here, I'll read it and I'll explain. It says, and being let go, Peter and John, they went to their own companions. So these, the, the church, right? And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. All these warnings. How they had been arrested. You know, they filled them in. They're like, what happened? We saw you got arrested. We heard you got arrested. And so, so when they heard, basically, the warnings and the threats that had been made against them, it says, they raised their voices with one accord and said this, Lord, now they're praying together. You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, you're sovereign. You're in control of all things. Who, by the mouth of your servant David, had said... Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. In other words, they're saying, we know the time we're living in. You said this was going to happen and this is what we see in this circumstance. 
He says for in verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles of the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So also acknowledging God's divine involvement, even in the, the things that looked to be outside of God's control. He says, now with the crucifixion of Christ and the rebellion of the religious leaders and all this, he says, then this is their prayer in verse 21. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your words. Praying for themselves. These are the servants. Lord, give us boldness to speak your words words by stretching out your hand to heal another asking for more opportunities to heal so that the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant jesus and when they had prayed the place where they were assembled together was shaken god was saying i got you (laughs) and they were filled with the holy spirit and they spoke the word of god with boldness now i think these texts these things that we read here these verses I think it demonstrates an an attribute seen, again, in the early church that is not seen too often today. I challenged us when we began the book of Acts because I'm always confronted by people. Why can't the church just be like the church was in the book of Acts? Why can't we get back to that? And they usually have some kind of agenda that they want to bring up when they're talking about that. But, But listen, let's look at these biblical principles and their examples and go, we need to be like this. This attitude, this, this attribute that, that I don't see, that maybe you do, but maybe you don't either, in, in the church today, in that when Peter and John returned to their friends, they told them and told them what, what had happened. Then they united together in prayer and they prayed to God. But notice that when they prayed here, they didn't ask to be delivered from the persecution that they knew was coming from them for them. I think that's what I would have prayed for. God, they made threats against me. They're the authorities. They're coming for us. Protect us from that. Deliver us from that. Rather, what did they pray? They prayed that they would be able to endure with courage the trials that were going to come and for boldness to speak God's worth in the face of the opposition. And if I'm being completely honest, and I have to say this, is that this willingness to be taken through the trial and not beg God, to be delivered from the trial, it's far removed from my nature as a human being. And I think even removed from modern-day Christianity. And as a result of that, I think it's hard to accept what I believe God would have us here today. What He wants to speak to us today, I think is hard to hear. But we need to hear it. And I pray that God would give us strength on the inside so that we might hear and apply the example of the, the early church to our lives. As we all, by nature, when trials or tribulations comes, our first response is to want to run away. Our first response is to ask to be delivered at any cost. Yet the truth of the matter is, Jesus told us, again, we'll have troubles in this life. And what we need to remember is that these trials, the Bible makes it really clear, it's intended to refine us as we go through them. And so maybe our prayer life should be more like, God, give me the strength and the power to make it through this trial, not deliver me out of it. Because we would be asking to be delivered from the very good thing that God wants to do in us and through us as we go through it. 
Listen, in Romans chapter 5, it explains this saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we also have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm like, amen, I love that part. And then Paul says this, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Do we? Do we? I think we rejoice in the hope of glory and the grace in which we stand and the access that we have through our faith in Jesus Christ, having been justified and having peace with God. But do we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulation produces, it says here, in all truthfulness, perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Furthermore, reading James chapter 2, verses 1 excuse me, James 1, verses 2 through 4, he writes and says, just so that we think that maybe Paul was uh, the only one to write about this, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Do we? Do we? Knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In light of this, we need to understand that God's never promised us that this life would be all perfect just because we've given our life to Him. But God has promised us that He would never leave us. He has promised us that He would never forsake us. And He's promised us that He would walk with us through the fiery trials of this life that are designed to refine us. There's an awesome example of this in the account found in Daniel chapter 3. You guys are familiar with it? It's a, Bible, it's, a, it's a Sunday school Bible story, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the original narcissist. <laughs> Babylonian king. He built a gold, a gold statue, a golden image of himself And he required all to bow down and worship him as reflected in this golden statue when music was played. If you know the story, there were three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they refused to bow down. And this was something that was punishable by death. They refused to bow down and they refused to worship this image because they served, it said, the true and living God. And they would only bow down to him. And so the king, hearing this, was very angry. And he called for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be tossed into a fiery furnace where they would be consumed by flames unto death. As a matter of fact, he was so angry at their disobedience and their unwillingness to worship him and to to do what was commanded, that he had the the fires of this furnace stoked to to a heat that had never been, that that the men who eventually tossed them in, were consumed by the flames at the gate of the furnace. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the fiery furnace, and one might think that God would have delivered them from the furnace, from the fire. Why? They didn't compromise. God, we're your servants. We serve you alone. We're not compromised. We serve you faithfully. And yet we're being thrown into this fiery furnace. But God did allow for it. But God did not allow for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
to be consumed by the flames. They didn't die. As a matter of fact, when you read in Daniel, August, if you want to come up, just about finished here, we read in Daniel chapter 3 that when they were tossed into the fire, there found with them and protecting them supernaturally from the flames of the fire, it says, was the Son of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, the same thing is true for us. I don't know what the future holds. I don't really know exactly what you all are going through individually and personally right now. Certainly in some of our lives, there are fiery furnaces, trials, hardships, difficulties, things where we have no answers to. And, 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 and I don't know what the future holds, but I believe for those of us who call upon the name of Jesus Christ that we're close to experiencing trials in a way that we've never experienced before as a result of claiming the name of Christ, that if the Lord delays on his return, we're going we're gonna to be in the midst of it. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that the same thing is true for us in that God will allow for us to be tossed into the fiery furnaces, into the trials of life. Maybe uh, for you today it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's a financial struggle or failure. But whatever the trial is, guys, we can rest assured that God is refining us, that he's doing a good work in us, that he might do a good work through us, that as we go through the trial itself, that God's burning off those things, the Bible says, that are not like him. And when we hang out with Jesus, that's what's going to take place. But we can also rest, rest in the fact that God will send his son to us so that we're not consumed through the trial. That we're not consumed, but that we're protected and that we're even comforted in the midst of the suffering. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, they weren't jumping up and down like they were walking on a hot coals. <laughs> they were relaxed. They were rested. They were in a place of safety in the presence of God, the Son of God. Comforted in the midst of the suffering, protected from the flames of the fire, and God will do the same for us. Lord, I thank you for that promise, for this imagery, for these examples. <clears throat> I thank you for the heart of the early church their attitude and their example as witnessed here even again this morning. And so, Father, in light of that, I pray that we would be prepared and expecting hardships and persecutions and sufferings, Lord, in this life. First of all, so that we may, be, we may respond in, in godly ways, that we may love, that we may have joy, that we have peace and goodness and kindness and self-control, and faithfulness, Lord, to you, that that may be what is brought forth in those times. We'd be a light and a witness for you. And ultimately, Lord, that, that we wouldn't seek to escape the hardship, the difficulty, Lord, but that we would look to you to carry us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.